Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for 49 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Who is Catherine Jackson French? And why is she important to the history and the music of Appalachian, Kentucky? Today on the Think Humanities podcast, we will answer that question with our guest, Elizabeth DiSavino. She is an assistant professor of music at Berea College. Her new book, published by the University Press of Kentucky, is titled Catherine Jackson French, Kentucky's Forgotten Ballad Collector. Welcome, Professor DiSavino. Thank you. So... What better way to start than to say to you, who is Catherine Jackson French? Catherine Jackson French was a truly remarkable woman. She was born in London, Kentucky in 1875, and she had the kind of education that very few women of her generation had. She earned a Ph.D. at Columbia University in English literature, and when she came home in 1909 to tend her her sick mother... um, After her mother recovered, she went off into the hills of East Kentucky looking for Appalachian ballads, the the, um, descendants of these beautiful old story songs that had come over from the British Isles uh, with the early settlers, and they had transplanted themselves here, and then they took on new life. Um, Jackson tried to publish her collection in 1910, but she was not successful, and um, the fact is that what she wrote about Appalachian balladry, in addition to the musical qualities of the ballads themselves, are very different than what other early collectors uh, had done and had written. Um, Among other things, Jackson really highlighted the role of women uh, and their role in being the keepers of these beautiful old songs. Um, And that's not the way it was originally portrayed. And and in fact, that's, that's not the way that most of us think of Appalachian musicians anyway. You know, we, we tend to think of it in terms of men because it was men who were the more famous collectors and it was men like Cecil Sharp who wrote those initial um, long introductions to their works that painted a picture of, of Appalachian balladry as being a thing that was more or less practiced by men um, and the women were just kind of in there, you know. Um, and this in spite of the fact that two-thirds of Sharp's informants were actually women. But Catherine Jackson really highlighted the role of women as ballad collectors. Now, was she the only one doing this kind of work um, in this period, or did men and women, were there uh, collections being attained uh, before uh, or, or I guess, afterwards? Uh, what distinguishes her work, other than uh, she focuses on women, um, more than, than maybe uh, so what had been done uh, before her? Yeah, um, that's a great question. She was not the only one. She was the first to try to publish a large scholarly collection of ballads. Um, But she was not the only one collecting. Uh, Among others, there was uh, Evelyn Wells, who was at the Pine Mountain Settlement School, and and she had been compiling ballads pretty much the whole time she was there. Catherine Pettit did the same thing at Hindman. Um, Josephine McGill uh, collected... Lorraine Wyman collected, 
One of the first uh, extensive writings on Appalachia is a beautiful book called The Spirit of the Mountains by Emma Bell Miles. And she doesn't write much about ballads, but it's kind of just a slice-of-life book. It's beautifully written. It's not long. It's easy reading. Um, and she, in that book, she's got a whole bunch of different songs. So, you know, she might get credit for painting the full first full, full picture of, uh, you know, music in Appalachia. Um, but Captain Jackson French was the first to try to put together a large scholarly collection uh, and to publish it. But she didn't have any, any luck. Well, we'll talk about uh, that and, and also some... Um some startling statements uh, about uh, stereotypical uh, Appalachian people and music and that sort of thing, but we'll use that as a a tease for right now and and come back to that. How did she first become acquainted with Appalachian music? Well, you would think it would have been from her childhood on because she grew up in London, Kentucky. In fact, she was born more in Lily towards... uh, Levi Jackson State Park, but up into the mountains, in a, in a log in a, excuse me in a log cabin at uh, Raccoon Springs, and she spent about the first ten years of her life there, and then the family moved into town because her father became a pretty successful merchant, but but she did not really come across Appalachian balladry in her childhood. She said she had learned Barbara Allen from a nursemaid, but she didn't know anything else. Um, but she became interested in balladry when she went to Columbia. For one thing, she studied European medieval literary balladry. And for another thing, she had some friends who had gone to a lecture by two people from, of all places, Berea College. And the lecture included some talk about these ballads that were floating around in the mountains of Kentucky and nobody had collected them yet. So she determined at that point that as soon as she got home, she would go collecting. And that opportunity came, as I said, in 1909. How many young women of her era went to Columbia University? Uh, Well, not too many. Um, Barnard was around by then, which was the women's college. But there were, uh, you know, Catherine was in the doctoral program of Columbia University. And that was not a very old program when she went there. It was only maybe about 25 years old. She was the second woman to earn a Ph.D. in English literature from Columbia University, which is a pretty big distinction. Um, And, you know, the fact is that when she went to college by around the year 1900, only about 2% of the entire population of the United States was going to college in the first place, and a very small percentage of that was women. And if you look at what percentage of women were in doctoral programs, it was, it was minuscule. So she was really ahead of the curve. Did she uh, intend to come back uh, to take care of her mother and to teach, or did she ever write other than did she um, write uh, fiction, nonfiction, narrative, a genre uh, of that sort? Well, Jackson, um, <clears throat> Jackson became a teacher. Um, she did spend... Um, when she came home in 1909, she spent until about 1917 in Kentucky, mostly trying to get her ballads published. Um, and it didn't go anywhere. She got married, wound up in Shreveport, Louisiana, where she became a teacher. She did not do a lot of writing. She did do a piece of writing on heraldry. She did do some writing on the Sue Bennett School, where she was the um, head headmistress, headmaster, whatever, for a year. 
Um, and it's, it's a beautiful piece of writing about, about the founding of the school. But she really did not publish a lot of other works, no. Tell us the story, please, of um, her expedition, uh, her adventure in, into the mountains and her, her guide. Yeah. Well, a trip like that rises and falls on your intercessor. And Catherine Jackson had the sheer dumb luck to climb into a wagon with a 60-year-old widow named Lysane Napier. The name Napier is a pretty well-known one in eastern Kentucky. Her maiden name was Begley. That is also a well-known name among musicians in eastern Kentucky. So she was the, the she was she embodied the marriage of two musical families, both of whom had tremendous <clears throat> ballad traditions. And not only that, but you know, everybody knew Lysane. And so when you know, when Lysane showed up at somebody's doorstep, they were welcomed. You know, she was the one who was, was always saying, She's a real nice lady, which of course is code word for you can talk to her, it's okay. I don't think Catherine Jackson would have had nearly the success that she had without the help of Lysane Napier. So they, they first went to uh, the house of Lysane's sister, and uh, uh, after that they went to a quilting bee, and they went to various other places over a period of about two weeks. She wound up with over 60 ballads just on that first trip. Now, when you say that uh, she wound up with... Um over 60 ballads uh, in, in two weeks. Do, do you mean that she was um, writing out the lyrics, uh, writing out the, the notes? Was she uh, scoring the work? Uh, was she, she wasn't recording, or was she, um, some of the music? Tell, tell me about the process that she went through. Yeah, she notated the uh, melodies on manuscript, and she wrote down the lyrics. So she uh, she basically did everything herself. Um, when Cecil Sharp went collecting, he wrote down the melodies, and his assistant Maud Carpelis wrote down the lyrics. But Catherine was the only one who could do this. So she was able to, <clears throat> you know, write down the melody as soon as it was sung, and then I guess she must have asked for them to be sung a couple times in order to get all of the lyrics. And that process took her how long um i mean she that that's only one trip that she made uh, uh did did she continue to go back year after year well she did collect in various places when when she came to berea she took uh advantage for example of the opportunity of being in berea to interview people in the town and in madison county um and to collect some ballots from them um, but she also, yeah, she did continue to poke around and take trips and, and, um, she didn't do anything nearly as extensive as that first trip, but there are some other ballads that she came by later that she did not, uh, hear on that first trip. So we can assume that she, you know, she did make an effort to keep collecting for at least, uh, probably at least another five years after she initially tried to publish. When did you first hear... Mountain music. When did I first hear mountain music? Uh, I first heard, well, this is funny, actually, because I grew up in New Jersey. Of course, I grew up in a part of New Jersey that isn't officially Appalachia, but it's in the foothills of Appalachia. Nobody knows that the Appalachians go through the northwest corner of New Jersey, but they do. But 
were not counted as part of the 420 counties, you know. But I grew up in a town that was in the hills, and it was all, um, you know, cornfields and peach orchards and and uh, hemlock forests and, and really lovely little place. And my first record, the first record that was given to me when I was five years old was Gene Ritchie's Shivery. So <laughs> that was my introduction to mountain music. And I, I don't know if I knew quite what to make of it at the time. I know that I enjoyed the part where they were banging on the pots and pans to try to disturb the bride and groom. That much I remembered, you know, and that much I liked because it was funny. Um, but I, I was introduced to, <clears throat> you know, to ballads and to these kinds of songs at a very young age. Well, you have an interesting story, too, about how you discovered Catherine Jackson French's life and, and her story. Um, it, it's one of those that... Uh, Many writers uh, wish the same could happen to them, and it does occasionally. It's the uh, uh, the footlocker in the attic uh, and the papers that uh, the, the grandmother or the great-great-grandmother have left. It's sort of a confederacy, uh, confederates in the attic uh, type of uh, story. Um, t- tell us about uh, how someone suggested that you look into this hmm. this music. Well... When I first came to Berea in 2011, uh, I got a um, a fellowship uh, at the Hutchins Library Archives to compare music of the Catskill Mountains with that of southern Appalachia. So I was in there doing research with my husband, and in walks Harry Rice. Harry Rice is one of the archivists at the Berea College Special Collection and Archives. He's in charge of the sound archives. And Harry, I, I call Harry the music elf. Harry can lay his hand on anything, no matter how obscure, in a matter of minutes. You know, you can say, Harry, do you, you know that 1929 recording in Knoxville? You know, not the not the Big Bang recording, but the 1929 one. Where and you know he disappears two minutes later. Here it is. You know. Anyway, so Harry walks out and he's got a box in his hand, and he says. Have you ever heard of Catherine Jackson French? And I said, no. And he put the box down on the table. And in that box, in that box was everything that, that was known of Catherine Jackson French, everything that was left of her life. There were a couple letters. There were a couple of uh, newspaper clippings. There was an article she had written called A Fortnight in Ballad Country. And there were four collections of her ballad collection. And the more that I read what was there and looked at these songs, the more questions I had. Who was this woman? You know, why had she gone into the mountains collecting? And and, and how come nobody's heard of her? And 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 she went to Columbia and she got a doctorate in 1906. Who does that? Who was this woman? You know. So the more questions I asked, the more questions it led to. Um, Finally, I decided I wanted to really dig into this story. And in uh, 2014, I was trying to find some of her descendants, some of her relatives, anybody who might have known her. And I went to London, Kentucky. I tried to dig up relatives. I had no luck. Then I had the idea that I could go to one of those online genealogy sites and get a free trial because I was really broke at the time. <laughs> and... um I got a, a free trial, and I managed to find that Catherine Jackson French's daughter, Catherine, uh, had married a guy named Buckland. Uh, excuse me, uh, 
her granddaughter had married a guy named Buckland and that they lived in South Carolina. So I looked up Kay Buckland's and called every Kay Buckland I could find. And finally, I, you know, I called one and she picked up the phone and I said, hello, this, this may seem strange, but I'm looking for the granddaughter of a woman named Catherine Jackson French. And there was a moment's pause, and then she said, well, I'm the granddaughter of Catherine Jackson French. She was my grandmother. That was it. So we, we had a conversation. We had several conversations, and then she invited me to come out to South Carolina, and she said, uh, you know, my, my mother kept a lot of things. I think, I think you might be interested in them. So I went out there. She met me at the airport, took me to her home, and in a room were boxes and boxes and boxes just stacked on tables and on the floor of things that had belonged to Catherine Jackson French. There were lesson plans. There were diaries. There were photographs. There were newspaper clippings. There were certificates. It was a gold mine. And, I mean, I, I, I practically started jumping up and down. I was so excited, you know. And uh, I spent three days there um, reading and photographing and um, <clears throat> had way more to read through than I could uh, while I was there. And uh, took it all home and, and began putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together. My biggest question was, why had, why had William Goodall Frost, the president of Berea College, promised to publish and then didn't help her? You know, why, why had that happened? And uh, the answer to the story is a great one, and it's in the book. And I won't give it away, but I will say it was this tremendous tangle of intrigue and professional jealousies and broken promises and gender role limitations and, and personality conflicts and, and, uh, and a whole bunch of things that were involved with what was called the ballad wars of the early 20th century, where ballad collectors were out to you know, lay their hands on these precious artifacts, these ballads, and puff up their own reputations by doing so. So, so all of that played into the story. It's a great story. Well, any good writing teacher will tell you uh, that you have to have conflict, and uh, you found it, and you, uh, you you've written about it. It's uh, it sounds fascinating. Uh, so uh, we're going to take a pause here, uh, Professor De Savino, and uh, come back and. Um, uh, we'll let you uh, tell us a little bit about the music that we're going to hear. And then uh, one key uh, statement uh, that I've read about, uh, that I mentioned at the top about uh, stereotypes. And we'll, we'll come and do that right after we hear from our good friends at Spalding University. Spalding University is affordable, nationally distinguished, low residency MFA in writing offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. We talked about the music, and uh, there's a, this is an appropriate time to, to hear some of it. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you have uh, sent us uh, that we're going to uh, put on the podcast. 
Well, when I went to record these ballads, um, I decided that I, I would do them in a variety of ways because the traditional way of doing these ballads is to do them straight a cappella. But a double CD of straight a cappella ballads is something that modern audiences um, would have a hard time listening to, I think. Um, and so what I did was I set some of them in a very traditional manner, straight ahead a cappella. Uh, I set some of them with instrumental accompaniment. Some of them suggested um, uh, an almost classical approach. Uh, for example, Barbara Allen. Um, and uh, so I, I went with a more, um, oh, I don't know, uh, a more English-sounding accompaniment to that rather than an Appalachian one. Um, I set them in a variety of ways to give some interest to the album. And I also was very careful not to do it in a style that was a mimicry of Appalachian ballad singing um, because I'm not a Southern Appalachian and I think that that's um, I, I think that that's inauthentic you know for me to put on an Appalachian accent and and sing it in in the stereotypical style I think in the first place that, that would kind of be insulting and in the second place when you really get into Appalachian ballad singing you find out that there are a variety of ways of singing um for example, um, Darren Douglas, who is the granddaughter of Jane Hicks Gentry, who was Cecil Sharp's prime informant, he got 60-plus ballads off of her, um, she says that her grandmother didn't sing in a, in a, in a gravelly, harsh voice. She sang in a, uh, a gentler, more refined voice because she was a town person. She'd grown up in the town hearing different ways of singing. Um, and so, at any rate, when I set out to do these ballads, I set out to do them in a way... Uh, that would be interesting for the listener. Let's hear some of that music. There was a lord lived in the old country.
do we know uh, the 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 writers, uh, the lyricist, the the composer of all of these ballads, uh, Professor DiSavino? We know the composers of virtually none of them. Um, that's the whole thing with ballads is they stretch back into antiquity. Uh, most of them are at least 300 years old, uh, if not more. Some of them, a couple of them date back to the 1200s. So um, we do not know who the authors were. We just know that they have been passed hand to hand and that uh, every hand that has touched them has shaped them. Do we know that uh, their origins were were European um, or, or Welsh or um, uh, another area of uh, of migration to the new land? What 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 do we know about the their, the the originality of them? Yeah, we know that they're definitely from the British Isles. Most of them appear to have come from the borderland between Scotland. Uh, and England, the lowlands of Scotland, the uplands of England, <clears throat> which makes sense because the big migration that happened in the 1700s uh, was from Northern Ireland, where Scots, lowland Scots primarily, and also some upland English had been transplanted to the Ulster plantations. And then in the 1700s, they came over to America, mostly to Pennsylvania, and from there worked their way down. At the same time, uh, English settlers in uh, North Carolina and Virginia were working their way west. And so you actually had a couple of different uh, ballad traditions coming into the mountains because the Scottish traditions and the English traditions, even if the lyrics were the same, the music was different. And then once they got to the mountains, they became something else again because they encountered other peoples. They encountered Germans, they encountered African Americans, and they encountered, encountered Native Americans, and that had an influence on what happened to the melodies of these old songs. Hmm. Well, let me uh, go to the statement that I read that um, caught my attention that, that uh, I, I believe is contained in the University Press of Kentucky's publication notes for this. It, it could have also be from a piece that um, I believe you contributed to, which... Um, was uh, an Appalachian magazine, but you you can correct me if I'm wrong about uh, whether this is UPK's or, or someone else's. And that's this one very simple sentence. Had uh, French, Catherine Jackson French, published her work in 1910, as you uh, referred to, stereotypes about Appalachian ignorance, misogyny, and homogeneity may have diminished long ago. Now, is that is that your statement, or is that um, something written by someone else? Well, that was written by the press, but it's pretty accurate. Um, in the first place, you have to understand that the, the early collectors of the ballads were really fixated on the Anglo-Saxon aspect of it. And why? Because they were using it to prop up this image of Appalachians as pure Anglo-Saxons. And why? Because to be anything but Anglo-Saxon was not acceptable. And in fact, there was a good deal of hysteria in the early 1900s about uh, immigrants coming to the cities from uh, Italy, my people on my father's side, uh, from uh, uh, Hungary, from you know Southern Europe in general. Um, and so there was this effort to, to portray Appalachians as purely Anglo-Saxon. Well, if you look at the two titles, the title of Sharp's collection is English Folk Songs from the Southern Appalachians, 
and Jackson's title is English-Scottish Ballads from the Hills of Kentucky. And you might say, well, big deal, but it is a big deal because Scots are not Anglo-Saxons. They're not Angles, and they're not Saxons. And if you doubt that, try calling a Scot an Anglo-Saxon, and when you get up off the floor, we'll talk about it. Um, so uh, that's the very first thing, is that she just the title itself and the fact that she uh, compared these ballads to earlier collections, including Scottish ones, like uh, Scots Minstrelsy of the Southern Border, uh, Walter C. Uh, uh, Scott's uh, Mistressy of the Southern Border. Um, that was different than than what the other collectors were doing. So that's the first thing. The second thing is um, she encountered some interesting things in the mountains that um, other people writing about ballads hadn't commented on. For example, she did not write at length about this, but when she, when she wrote an article... Um, they came out much later, and you have to wonder if she might not have been writing articles like this all along if she'd had any luck. Uh, she talked about encountering two boys at her at Sister Marthy's house, that first stop that, that she went to, and they were playing the banjo. They were not just playing the banjo, they were playing the banjo fiddlestick style. Fiddlesticks means taking knitting needles, one person hits the strings, and the other fingers the banjo. Well, that's a style of playing, was really a style of fiddle playing that came from the Caribbean. So what was this style of Caribbean playing doing in the Appalachians? There's a wonderful story there that, you know, we're never going to get the the entire uh, uh, roadmap of. Um, but there are, there are a number of things in there that go against the uh, sort of stereotypes that are presented by some of the other collections. But the biggest one is the role of women. She really highlighted the role of women uh, as the preservers of the ballads. And in fact, she dedicated her collection to the colonial mothers of America. You have no doubt, um, I'm sure you've conversed with historians um, of, the, of the period that, um, that what you've written is, is true. Um, as, as much as you can fact check through her notes and and uh, the work that you discovered uh, in her own hand and and that sort of thing in a in a very uh unusual but um compelling way uh, that it can change the the course of history i mean it really that's rather phenomenal and monumental is it not or am i making too much of it no i don't think you're making too much of it um i think that that Women are often left out of the story of our history as we tell it, um, of our national story, of our regional stories, um, and certainly out of the story of the history of Appalachian music. I mean, until lately. Lately, there's been a resurgence in re-examining that, <clears throat> as well as uh, re-examining the role of, of African Americans, among other groups of people. Um but until you put together all of the pieces, you don't have the true story. And so this, this, this story of um, the importance of women as the keepers of ballads, this is a really important part of the story. Um, and it is one of those missing puzzle parts. So, I, you know, I, I, hope it, I hope this inspires people to go out and look for those other missing parts. Well, the book is uh, Catherine Jackson French, Kentucky's Forgotten Ballad Collector. 
uh, written by uh, Professor Elizabeth DiSavino of uh, Berea College, published by the University Press of Kentucky. And you also wanted to mention that uh, uh, another credit there. I'll just let you do that. Yeah, the uh, uh, the uh, CD that I made of the ballads is called There Was a Fair Maid Dwelling, and it was made with the help of a grant from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. The ballad, the ballad book, uh, the book of just the ballads, uh, is going to be published very shortly by the Loyal Jones uh, uh, Appalachian Center at Berea College. And when um, when one um, acquires one, do they get all three? Is it a package deal? How, how, how does that work? If they'd like a package deal, they can contact me. Nobody's nobody's done that yet. Most people are interested in one aspect or the other. But um, you can check out my my uh, website at elizabethdecevinoauthor.com. That's probably the easiest way to go. Um, for any more information on on uh, all three parts of this, well, Professor Di Savino, thanks very much. It's an, a really a fascinating story, uh, one that uh, uh, writers of, uh, of of all genres dream about discovering, and uh, you did so. And uh, we, we wish you the best of luck on it. Thank you so much. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's story for forty nine years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.